0: Welcome back to the broadcast friends welcome back this is james corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you're tuned into corbett report radio right here on the republic broadcasting network also blasting out on khfx 1140 a.m in dallas fort worth so to all of you in dallas and all of you around the world wherever you might be listening to me thank you for joining us for another edition of the broadcast and tonight we have a very interesting guest lined up for you and people who have been listening to CorbettReport.com and subscribe to the feeds there, might have heard my recent interview with John Rappaport of No More Fake News. and uh, And for those who haven't yet encountered that, I would of course suggest that you might use that interview as a starting point for your exploration of John and his work. We had the chance the other week to talk about bioethics and the real eugenics agenda behind that very, very stimulating uh, discussion on some very important topics. In fact, bio bioethics and eugenics generally, of course, is something that I've been concerned with for quite a while, and and I've been looking more specifically at bioethics recently. So uh, if you haven't yet encountered that topic or why it's important to the overall depopulation scheme, I suggest you go to corporatereport.com and use the search bar in the top right. Just type in the word bioethics, and several different uh, things will pop up for you. But as we're waiting to get John on the line tonight, let me just use this opportunity to introduce you a little bit to his work and what he's been doing. Of course, John Rappaport is an investigative journalist who has been running nomorefakenews.com since 2001. And he's also got a blog up at johnrappaport.wordpress.com. Tonight we're going to be talking about a CD that he released recently called The Matrix Revealed, Volume 1. And I have a copy sitting right here on my desk, all the way here in the sunny climes of western Japan. And it is uh, chock full of information. There's all sorts of different information, including audio and uh, and several PDFs of interviews that he's done, and also a logic course. And I think we'll be concentrating on his logic course tonight and the, the, the ramifications of that. He's basically written a, a, a curriculum for people who are interested in learning more about logic and logical reasoning. So some very interesting and uh, helpful uh, things here. So I hope that you will at least check out his work generally at news.com. And if you're interested, of course, you can find out how to get The Matrix Revealed, Volume 1, from there. And on that note, of course, uh, I myself am a independent web journalist here in Japan, and I am brought to you by yourselves out there, so I also... Require your support, and I'd just like to once again thank all of the people out there who have so far ordered one of uh, the Corbett Report DVDs, my 2009 or 2010 video archive, or my uh, Data DVD, Volume 1. And of course, for those of you out there who don't know, the Data DVD contains every single podcast episode, every interview, every article, every video that I created from the birth of the Corbett Report in June 2007 all the way up to, uh, to the end of 2008, so... Quite a bit of media jam-packed onto one double-layer, dual-layer DVD. And that's available on CorbettReport.com from the Support tab. Just go to CorbettReport.com slash support. You can find the DVDs for sale there, and you can also find a way to subscribe to my newsletter, which uh, comes out once a month. However, in the very near future, I hope to be bringing you the uh, weekly editorials that I'm writing for the International Forecaster That is something that I'm writing every Saturday now, and I'm honored, again, to be associated with uh, just an incredible talent I'm associated, and I'm blessed to be associated on so many fronts with so many incredible people, and one of them, of course, is Bob Chapman. So every Saturday I'm writing the uh, editorial article for his uh, newsletter, and I'm going to be Seeing, I'm going to negotiate with Bob if I can get that for my uh, newsletter subscribers so that I can send that out directly to you guys out there. So once again, to everyone who is subscribed for 100 Japanese yen a month or less, uh, again, I couldn't thank you, or, or more, I should say. I couldn't thank you enough. It truly does make everything that I'm doing possible. But on that note, we're going to take a short break, get John Rappaport on the line, and we're going to start a conversation about logic, reality, and the nature of the universe. A pretty tall order for tonight's conversation. So I hope you will uh, stay right there stay tuned and we'll be right back, back right after these messages. Keep
1: in breedle, a green belt around our minds an endless red tape to keep the truth confined
0: Welcome back to the Broadcast Trends. Thank you once again for joining us tonight here on Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're going to be talking to John Rappaport of NoMoreFakeNews.com. So once again, for those of you out there who haven't yet checked out his website or his work, you can find a lot of it there. You can find a lot uh, that he writes on pretty much a daily basis at JohnRappaport.wordpress.com, which is his blog. And, of course, he's also on YouTube and many other uh media outlets have interviewed him in the past, so a great way to do that. And for those of you who are just uh, joining us, of course, we will be talking to John Rapoport. We're still getting him on the line and getting him ready to go. But, uh, but until then, let me just introduce a, a specific article that, uh, that I wanted to go over with him tonight that I thought was particularly interesting. It's on his uh, blog right now. It's from April 15th, just a couple of days ago, and it's under the headline, One Room Schoolhouse in the Country. It's called uh, The Post-Apocalyptic Education. And it starts with a pull quote from The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, which says, Artistic value is achieved collectively by each man subordinating himself to the standards of the majority. And, of course, in the context of The Fountainhead, I think you'll know that that doesn't mean that that's what Ayn Rand's position was. But at any rate, uh, this uh, article starts out by saying, It's pretty hard to push collectivism when you have 20 students sitting in a one-room schoolhouse in the country. If, though, you're teaching in a factory where a few thousand kids struggle to appear every morning, collectivism is self-defense. Hi, we're all in this together, remember that. Anybody packing heat? One would be less prone to elucidate Socrates or the agrarian vision of Thomas Jefferson in these industrial quarters. John Mills' covert op principle for, of the greatest good for the greatest number, would tend to prevail, or as they say in basic arithmetic, lowest common denominator. The collectivist ideal of education, as pursued and funded by the great foundations Carnegie, Rockefeller, Ford, Guggenheim, find their natural home in the factory-type school. I doubt, though, that even the most optimistic utopians in the early days of those organizations could have envisioned the great equality of the brain mush that has worked out to be, in the fullness of time, the ultimate style of the group. There is no longer any need to obscure the principles of the Republic's founders, there is no need to hide the study of logic from children. There is no need to squash individualism. We are past that. The takeover was accomplished several generations ago. We are now in the post-blight. From here on out, it's a matter of managing the clock. Keep them indoors until three. After that, all bets are off. In even the best secondary schools, the earnest and bright bright students are mainly exercising, exercising their minds in the surface of a better societal machine. We lost the war, so now we have to pick up the pieces. That entails, yes, homeschooling, but I'm sorry to report that is not a magical solution. Families are not automatically perfect. In the home, teachers have to emerge who can actually equip what will become strong, independent minds. Make sure you know what independent means. Make sure you understand that the overwhelming number of citizens consign themselves to a remoteness from the core of what is good and right and free and individual and powerful and they learn to live without it. I would love the idea of introducing logic into what's left of the U.S. school system. Not only does it cut through all the fairy tales, it makes kids into detectives, investigators, private eyes. They already think adults are crazy, so why not let them prove it? If you teach logic the right way, you have kids sifting through, actually reading, long passages of text and analyzing them for logical flaws. There are lists of logical fallacies you can use. They work. They allow a student to discover the varieties of deceptions in political speech, media speech, scientific speech, social speech. Turning out thousands of private eyes is far from the worst thing you can do. And with the right instructor, intelligent kids take to logic like barracudas to water. Once they're in the sea, they love it. They know they're getting sharper. Of course, I realize U.S. school systems aren't anxious to include logic as part of their curriculum. It tends to cut through the seaweed of collectivism. How? It's more real than collectivism. It inevitably feeds back to the individual mind, not the group. Barely out of college, I taught mornings at a high-priced prep school in Connecticut. Every day I'd take the train up to Greenwich from Grand Central Station, and I'd often ride with a very bright 13-year-old who was in my math class. I taught him logic by using the N.Y. Times as a target, and by the end of the semester, having seen through that level of propaganda, he was ready to be unleashed on the world. Go easy on your parents, I told him. They're civilians. He grinned. My father's a stockbroker, he said. I'm going to take him to the cleaners. Logic makes private eyes out of kids, and it also gives them the tools to pursue justice, and not the mass social product sold by racists of various stripes. I've seen kids who were taught... uh, taught logic, take apart that transcript of a murder, murder trial, and shred the attorneys and their witnesses. These kids were real lawyers. They were relentless. They chased down details that escaped the jury. It was a sight to behold. On one of the best days I ever had as a teacher, I took a group of wayward teenagers in my math class and guided them on a trip through the definition and meaning of collectivism. Many questions arose, and when we had sorted it all out, they broke down that social-political system like a bunch of scholars. They ripped it from stem to stern, not because I'd poisoned the well, but because they saw through the empty generalities that prop up the system. They practically rewrote the Bill of Rights, though none of them had ever read it or studied it. When I left school that day, I was in a foul mood because I realized how much intellectual capital we were wasting in the educational machine. Once again, that is uh, part of the opening to that very, very stimulating, I think, discussion on education called the Post-Apocalyptic Education. Once again, available from John Rappaport's blog at johnrappaport.wordpress.com And as I understand, we actually have uh, John on the line. So, John, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
1: Thank you, James. Great to be with you.
0: Well, it's great to have you here. And uh, again, we have talked before on corbettreport.com, but this is your first time on the radio broadcast. So let's just start by introducing yourself to the listeners out there and a little bit about your background of how you got into investigative journalism.
1: Well, uh, I graduated college back in 1960. I studied philosophy, which really was a study of logic for a long time under a great professor. And it wasn't really until 20 years later that I started working as a reporter, quite by chance. I had been teaching school on and off here and there in private schools and i was living in los angeles and a friend of mine was working for la weekly and she said she thought they were interested in finding writers and so i said okay i did an interview with somebody they published it as a cover story on the front page and they paid me i thought well this is easy <laughs> so i jumped in and they began assigning me various stories and I pitched them various stories, and it went on from there, and I began writing for uh, a number of other publications. I found it fairly easy, engaging, not terrifically engrossing, and this was the early and middle 80s, and then toward the end of the 1980s, I had pretty much established myself as a working reporter, but I had a lot of questions that were not uh, acceptable questions, shall we say, to the newspapers and magazines in the U.S. and Europe that I was writing for, such as Who Really Runs the World? <laughs> what are they doing? Why is the educational system being destroyed? Uh, how come kids seem to be um, operating more under some kind of uh, hypnotic influence? Why don't they learn how to think? I had many, many questions, and as I tried to pursue the biggest of these, including medical questions that had to do with uh, fraud at a very deep research level, I was rebuffed by one publication after another. We don't want to write these stories. We're not interested in this, or we've already covered it. And I could tell, basically, that they were lying to me. I began to understand finally after, uh, let's say, six years writing for newspapers and magazines that they had an agenda. <laughs> you know, I was extremely naive at the time. <laughs> uh, lo and behold, they had an agenda. And if I didn't fit into that agenda, then I wasn't really free to pursue what I wanted to and they wouldn't publish it. So um, late 1980s. I wrote a book called AIDS, Inc. Scandal of the Century about medical research fraud. I left uh, day-to-day reporting, week-to-week reporting. Ran for a seat in the U.S. Congress in 1994 out of Los Angeles on a platform of uh, what was called health freedom at the time, the right of every person to choose how they want to manage their own health and take care of their body. And then when the Internet... Uh, moved in uh, the year 2000 I started nomorefakenews.com my website and I've been writing
0: for it ever since and manage uh, your own health take care of your own body that sounds like Al-Qaeda talk to me we better, yeah, better send someone yeah. around to take care of that <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, that's the paradigm that we're living in. But uh, but uh, for those out there who don't know, absolutely, you've written for some very, very large, very mainstream publications, CBS, Healthwatch, SPIN, LA Weekly, some some very large uh, organizations there. And so it's uh, extremely interesting to see you uh, coming out of that matrix, so to speak, and, and joining the uh, reality-based community of the alternative media. Once again, we're talking to John Rappaport of nomorefakenews.com, and we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Radio friends, James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to John Rapaport of News.com, also his blog at JohnRapaport.wordpress.com. That's Rapaport, R-A-P-P-O-P-O-R-T. And if I didn't spell that very well, uh, you can always check the show notes for today's episode at CorbettReport.com/radio to get links to all of this that we're talking about tonight. So, John, it's great to have you here, and uh, and let's start getting into your latest CD, The Matrix Revealed, Volume 1, which I'm holding my hands here, which, as I was uh, explaining to the listeners earlier in the broadcast, is jam-packed with all sorts of different types of media and information. Let's talk a little bit about what people can expect to find on this CD.
1: Okay. This is what I would call insider information. Strangely enough, uh, in my history... The first thing that happened to me is I graduated from college 1960. I was approached by a businessman in New York who was a friend of the family. He comes up to me and he says, I understand you studied a lot of logic in college. I said, yes. He said, I'm assuming you can write. You went to a good college. I said, yes. He said, I'm trying to put together a report on Nazi Germany. I said, well, you know, the war is over. 1945, he said, yes, but we're talking about Nazism by other means. I said, well, it's something I'm not familiar with. He said, well, you should become familiar with it. And that started a whole series of conversations and people that he introduced me to who were showing me that, indeed, the Nazi agenda was alive and well in other parts of the world, that gigantic industrialists from Nazi Germany were still very active in rebuilding after the Second World War, they were still in control of major pharmaceutical companies, that their agenda for decimating areas of the human population was still intact, and they hoped by this scheme somehow to gain control of governments through proxies over a long period of time. This was not a short-term goal. This became the entree for me to eventually meet a whole host of people who I call insiders, all of whose credentials I've laboriously checked out by other means to determine that they are in fact who they say they are because they only talk to me off the record. And I have put together many, many pages of text and conversations, 1,100 pages of text in The Matrix Revealed, mostly, uh, well, the majority of which is interviews with these people in the area, for example, of how is propaganda really achieved through the press by a retired propaganda master whom I call Ellis assumed a pseudonym. Many interviews with Ellis with Richard Bell, another pseudonym, financial insider, Wall Street analyst. And they began to talk to me off the record in a number of conversations and saying, look, we want to show you the nuts and bolts of this. We can't talk to regular reporters because not only will they not report on this, it's outside their area of permission, but we'll talk to you. I said, fine, let's go. And so began this odyssey for me where I would ask every question under the sun I could think of. And they kept stressing to me, look, we want to give you exactly how the game is played to subvert populations, to do mind control on many different levels, to influence financial markets, to destroy the sovereignty of nations to convince populations that certain medical conditions which are completely fictitious must be treated with toxic drugs etc 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 and this was no longer just generalities they were talking about and so I thought okay I'm on the internet now I've got these people that are willing to talk to me and so I began putting out a weekly newsletter I think in two thousand one. And that went on for several years. Every Friday I would send out uh these mostly interviews with these people. So we come to the year two thousand eleven and a colleague of mine, Catherine Austin Fitz, said to me, You've got to put this material all together and present it as a whole. And so I did. And the idea is to reveal many aspects of what the matrix is. The matrix as a structure or series of structure operated by cartels that control various key areas of human life, such as money, government, intelligence, military, energy, medical, megacorporate, education, and how these cartels are horizontally joining up in a international fashion beyond any sovereign governments to put together the world of the future as it will be. And that's everything uh, significant that I can say in summary about what the matrix revealed is.
0: And you said it in the perfect amount of time, because we're just about to go to a break. Okay. And I certainly would imagine that has uh, absolutely piqued the interest of people out there. And for those who are interested, of course, they can find out more information at nomorefakenews.com. So let's take a short break. Let's regroup our focus. And uh, don't touch that dial. When we come back, we'll begin talking about the logic force that is included as part of the Matrix Revealed CD. So stay up, stay right there. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends, here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking to John Rappaport of NoMoreFakenews.com. And we're talking about some of the contents of his new CD, The Matrix Revealed, Volume 1, available at NoMoreFakenews.com. And I want to start by getting into one of the, uh, I think, the meat and potatoes, really the underlying uh, foundational education for much of what, uh, what else is built upon it, which is the logic course that is included in this CD, which includes an 18-part course and accompanying uh, MP3 audio files, uh, quite a lot of material to go through. So, uh, John, let's just start talking about logic and why it is a bedrock for understanding so much of uh, what's happening in this world.
1: Okay. A very brief intro. One of the people that I interview extensively in The Matrix Revealed is Jack True, who is uh, a late friend and colleague of mine, the most, by far, innovative hypnotherapist i've ever met and his attack on the matrix you might say in working with patients was devised to devise ways to really scope out the psychological aspects of how on deep levels people actually plug into the matrix how they get themselves trapped in it and to liberate them from it and Jack has a great deal to say about that in many interviews that I do with him. In The Matrix Revealed, I interview him 40 times. He said to me one day, you've got a background in logic. You've got to start to let people know about this. Because since the educational system is being destroyed, people are coming out of it completely unable to really think they're going for... Slogans, catchphrases, stereotypes, archetypes, they're ripe for every kind of propaganda under the sun. I thought about that, and I realized he was right, and some years later I put together this course, which was really directed originally at homeschoolers, but I also wanted to market it to uh, private schools, and I, I did eventually market it to a private school in the San Diego area. But sold it to a lot of homeschoolers and then I decided to include it in the Matrix Revealed. Logic is a way, first of all, for whether it's children or adults, of being able to read material or listen to material and trace the actual argument. Where does it begin? Where does it go? What does it conclude? And I use argument in the logical sense of somebody's trying to prove a point, somebody's trying to get somewhere. How do you follow that? How do you know where it begins and where it meanders and how it gets to its conclusion and how reliable or valid it is? And how can that be applied to the flood of information with which we're overwhelmed every day now? So I didn't want to make it too remote and abstract and formal, although some of that is necessary, but eventually, which I did, I wanted to link it up to actual text passages that people might encounter every day, embed them with logical flaws and fallacies so that they would begin to chew on these and work them over and see where things go wrong, logically speaking, to make, in other words real detectives out of people in the logical sense so that they feel that they finally have a really firm foundation in being able to reason and follow other people's reasoning to see whether it is indeed valid or not. And it was met with a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, I got more response to that than probably anything that I've ever put on my website when I began writing articles about logic and the logic course. And one of the things I discovered was that in some cases, what was being diagnosed as ADHD was really a lack of logic. Because if you don't have logic and you begin to try to tackle words and texts and information, there's a tendency to wander and to get distracted and have shorter attention span because... You don't really see the thread. You don't really see where it's going. You don't really follow the reasoning process. But when you can do that, attention spans get longer. Interest level gets higher. The person feels empowered to be a real investigative detective. And suddenly everything changes. And I found this with children. I found this with adults. It was absolutely remarkable the latent abilities that would come out in people. And when I came on the air, you were reading a passage from one of my recent articles, Post-Apocalyptic Education, about a group of kids that I saw that had in fact been trained in logic well, who went after the transcript of a murder trial, and they were phenomenal. Phenomenal. I mean, these were kids, some of whom were seemingly barely literate. But all of a sudden, something, you know, that you would almost call it magical occurred because once they had these principles in tow, they could look at extremely complex clusters of data and they could begin to analyze it and rip it apart and tear it to shreds. And they went over that murder trial and they found so many flaws in the arguments from both the defense and the prosecution and some of the rulings that were made from the bench. It was a revelation to them, to me, to, to you know, we were just staggered by the end of it. And they felt, and rightly so, so empowered that... I was inspired. I said, you know, I've got to write a course on this. And it's got to be a real course, not a seminar, not a little workshop, but an 18-lesson course with a teacher's manual, lesson plans, a final exam. Let's really get down and dig into this just the way I was dug into this by this uh, fantastic professor that I had at college who put us through the mill. But when we came out the other side, we were ready to take on anything literally anything. And that's well, that sounds to
0: like go. a challenge. Perhaps we should put that to the test. Why don't we do a little bit of a practical demonstration for the listeners out there who, I'm sure, encounter all sorts of fallacious arguments in their daily lives and may not know <laughs> how to break them down, how to understand them, how to parse what's really happening. So perhaps I can assume the role of skeptic McGrouchypants, and you can be the uh, logical professor who's going to tell us what, uh, what, is being, uh, w- what fallacious statements are being put forward in my argumentation. It sounds if very interesting. If you're a game. Oh, sure, so, let's have a go. Okay, so for example, Skeptic McGrouchy-Pants says that uh, uh, all conspiracy theorists have the need to believe that there is some sort of overarching explanation for things, and that's why they want to, they want to see, uh, for example, that 9-11 was an inside job.
1: Ad hominem argument, cleverly concealed. Ad hominem means, and that's one of the logical fallacies, there are it used to be taught in the public schools maybe a 100 years ago a list of about 10 to 15 logical fallacies that once you learned them, you could inspect any information and you'd be able to find them. Ad hominem means to the man, literally in Latin, in which you attack the person rather than take up the actual content of the argument. And in this case, McGrouchy is what he's doing here is using a kind of psychological version of ad hominem by saying, we have to really look at the motivation behind why these people are saying that 9-11 is a conspiracy. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, in a courtroom, for example, does the defense attorney say, Look, the only reason the prosecutor is really here is because he wants to add another notch on his belt. I mean, the judge would rule that out of bounds, and if the defense attorney kept it up, he would be put in jail on contempt charges. Because logical people recognize that's not really part of the argument. The question is, in case of 9-11, what is the argument that a person is making for a conspiracy? We have to look at the content of it and examine it carefully. We don't care what the motivation is. In fact, we know right away that the person who's making the 9-11 argument is being attacked on the basis of motivation as a way of deflecting him and saying that he is somehow psychologically challenged, he has a need that has to be met. In fact, I would go so far as to say that a considerable portion of modern psychology is, in fact, ad hominem argument against the patient. See, because the patient comes in and says, I have problems, I don't know what to do with my life. The psychologist says, yes, but you see, there are reasons why you're doing what you're doing, and this is what we have to uncover. And right away, if the patient buys into that, suddenly... The patient is, in a sense, on the defensive. Because now it's not a question of whether or not the patient uh, is intelligent, has some really pertinent criticisms of society, for example, the way society is structured. All of this is now suddenly irrelevant because the psychologist is saying, yeah, 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 but I don't really care why you're making these arguments. We ha- I mean, what the content is of the arguments, we have to get down to the roots of your psychological problems and then we can solve all this. And then the implication, just as in McRouchie's argument, see, is if the 9-11 conspiratorial researcher understood the roots of why he has to make this argument in the first place, he would be, quote, cured of the need to do so then there would be no argument and there would be no content and there would be nothing to examine.
0: So that's but, really... But, John, everyone knows that if there was some big conspiracy behind something like 9-11, someone would have blown the whistle. Mm-hmm. Argument number two. Argument number 2
1: <laughs> This is an attempt to... Again, it's a bit of ad hominem, attacking the person making the argument. But it's also attempting to float a generality, okay? That's another logical fallacy. Empty generality. One of the more frequent forms of illogic that you'll find everywhere. The idea is you make a generalization, but the generalization is vague it's empty it doesn't seem to be subject to verification how are we going to decide whether it's really true or not but it becomes the premise by which McGrouchy can try to deflect again the conspiratorial researcher and here's the generality it's the word conspiracy everybody knows that a conspiracy in order to succeed would have to be shared by hundreds, if not thousands, of people if you're talking something on the level of 9-11. And therefore, this is not a conspiracy because certainly some of those people would have already talked about their role in the conspiracy, and they didn't. Therefore, no conspiracy. That's basically the logical argument. So what I would do in that case is to say to McRouchy, define conspiracy what is it that you actually mean when you use this general term and I would keep on badgering and pestering McGrouchy until he actually defined what a conspiracy was at which point we would now have something to actually discuss and I would be able to give examples for instance of how a compartmentalized conspiracy could operate where Several people at the top would know the true agenda, and everyone else would be operating under orders in a compartmentalized fashion in order to carry out their missions and therefore make the conspiracy succeed. And a perfect example of that would be something that used to be called the USSR. It was operated supposedly under Marxian philosophy, which indicated that you would have a dictatorship of the proletariat. And during that time, there would be a caring and sharing and humanitarian attempt to bring everyone in in sharing the wealth of the society, at which point eventually it would all wither away naturally, and you would have paradise on earth. That was the whole argument. And I would say, okay, let us now examine the actual bureaucratic structure of the USSR and let's see how that worked out. How many people could we point to at the top of the structure that actually had uh, hugely more benefits than the proletariat? And when we examine this and do research on it, do we actually find... That it was only three or four people who were laboring, you know, underliving the high life because they wanted to serve everybody else? Or was this really a sham and a con from the beginning? A heist. A complete heist. And if so, how did this conspiracy succeed? And I could then begin to argue that it was through compartmentalization of tasks in an overall structure hierarchical structure, hierarchical structure, so that different people had different jobs, and when they all did their jobs and didn't question anything, it all added up to the USSR as it once existed. That was a conspiracy against the people of Russia. It can work that way. I could give numerous other examples of how a conspiracy in fact can take place without most of the people knowing The true agenda at the top, and therefore the argument that all conspiracies have to be shared intimately by thousands of people would be shown to be invalid. But none of that would happen if I were to allow the empty generality of the word conspiracy to go by the boards and didn't pin down the grouchy on being able to define that accurately. And that's where I would attack
0: first. And that's what I think. Yeah, you'd be exactly right to do so, because as you pointed out earlier, no one accuses a prosecutor in a criminal court case of being a conspiracy theorist or daring to to suggest there may have been a conspiracy behind an actual event, because that is, of course, part of the criminal code.
1: Yes, exactly. That is part of the criminal code. And in fact, we have in the United States what's called RICO statutes, which is you can bring people to trial and convict them on a charge of criminal conspiracy, organized criminal conspiracy. And then you would say, well, okay, we finally prosecuted these guys and threw them into jail after 50 years of their operating a criminal conspiracy. And then one might certainly ask, how did they get away with this for 50 years?
0: Well, they did. Maybe. Well, hmm, I wonder how, I wonder how, I can't imagine. J. Edgar Hoover <laughs> saying that it's a conspiracy theory to talk about La Cosa Nostra and things like exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Yeah, Unfortunately, right. the system props itself up. But uh, on that note, let's take another short break, and we'll be back to finish things up with John Rapaport of No More Fake News right after this. Report, report radio friends here we are in the closing minutes of tonight's broadcast and uh, we have been talking to john Rappaport of nomorefakenews.com once again nomorefakenews.com a great source of information on a number of subjects and of course you can also go to john Rappaport's blog john which uh, has pretty much daily updates and of course there's also a twitter feed that people can follow uh, john can you tell people what the twitter feed is I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> I've got Let a, me look a that up for a while. We're conversing. I'm, I am following you, so I'll just uh, I'll look that up. But, um, but absolutely. So there's lots of ways that people can keep in touch with what you're doing. So we've been talking tonight about The Matrix Revealed, Volume 1, this CD that's available from nomorefakenews.com. And we've been talking specifically about the Logic course, but there is, of course, much more to this uh, CD besides... And uh, One of the things that I found interesting on in here, and I hope we can get you to comment on it just briefly here in the final minute or two, uh, your interview with Thomas Jefferson. Tell us about that.
1: Clay Jenkinson, a really interesting guy. He's a showman, an actor, and he's also a Thomas Jefferson scholar. And he dresses up like Jefferson, and he has debates with Alexander Hamilton, he does a radio show, and he does interviews, and I interviewed him. But I don't think our interview was exactly like some of the interviews he's done before because I really was loaded for bear. I really wanted to ask him about many things that had to do with the Republic, the original Republic. And he said to me, for example, that when Lewis and Clark came back from their expedition to the Northwest and they reported to him on all that they had found and the gigantic expanse of land on the continent, Jefferson... Assumed that we would have a new republic out there, not the republic that already had been formed. And so I kind of pressed him on this and I said, well, you know, this is a gigantic country, 30, 330 million people. So why just one more republic? And he said, absolutely right. I said, what about a hundred republics on the, on the continent? He said, sure. Why not? And then he went on to say that he wanted every generation, to revisit their own constitution and rewrite it as they felt was necessary. That in no way was the constitution supposed to be forever. There was participatory government. That's what he was after. And then I started asking about the educational system, and I said, well, you've got to have educated people. And he said, well, the whole idea of the public school system was to have people learn how to be citizens in this new republic. That's all that it was. That's what it was meant to be. If you wanted to learn how to be a something or other, you know, a doctor or an engineer or whatever, you would do an apprenticeship. You would study with someone who already was But school was to be completely about using your native intelligence to become a citizen of the the republic, the free republic. And we went on from there, and it was a blockbuster. I mean, we explored many dimensions, and I got a whole new view of what Jefferson was really all about and what he had intended in the way of decentralization of power from the beginning that this was never intended to be a country of 300 million people that would be ruled by one eternal constitution forever. He just basically admitted that that was unworkable.
0: Well, exactly right, and of course the anti-Federalist papers are often neglected by people who want to return to the Constitution as if the Constitution was itself what many of the Founding Fathers were after, when it it most explicitly was not. It was not the, uh, the holy grail of what they were seeking but uh, much, much, much more to be said on that count and many other counts besides a very fascinating conversation. So once again, I hope people will check out John Rappaport's website, com, and this uh, very interesting CD, The Matrix Revealed, Volume 1. We'll have to leave it there for now. So, John, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much, James. I really appreciate it. All right, and thank you to all of you out there for listening. I'll talk to you all again tomorrow night.